Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Al Lightman will join us to discuss probable impossibilities. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world's famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, the great questions of who are we, why are we here, and where are we going? These issues are in a new collection by renowned physicist Al Lightman. Dr. Lightman is a well-known American physicist, writer, and social entrepreneur who has served on the faculties of Harvard University and MIT. He's currently a professor of practice of the humanities at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He's the author of numerous scientific and popular works, including the international best-selling novel Einstein's Dreams. He has penned the new collection of essays, Probable Impossibilities, Musings on Beginnings and Endings, and he joins us today to discuss these very fascinating topics for a general audience. Professor Lightman, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you, Charles. Certainly a fascinating and comprehensive collection of essays you've put together here, spanning everything from cosmology of the universe to subatomic scales. I'm curious how you went about choosing these particular essays. Over the last 10 years or so, I've been more and more interested in trying to locate our place in the universe to look at some of the questions that have bothered me a lot, like the nature of consciousness and how does consciousness arise from a material brain and how can we reconcile spiritual experiences with a scientific worldview. And when I say spiritual experiences, I'm taking a non-theist approach to that of feeling like you're part of something larger than yourself. So those have been various issues that I've been interested in over the last 10 years. All of these essays, in some way or another, reflect ruminations on those ideas. First essay that you talk with Sean Carroll about the Big Bang, and the question that comes up to many minds is, what might come before the Big Bang? Yes. Of course, one of the greatest questions in, that philosophers can ask, and I, I guess scientists too, is why is there something rather than nothing? And that's a question that we'll never have an answer the understanding of the Big Bang is the closest we can come to that. And there's a lot of evidence, of course, that our universe began about 13.8 billion years ago. Naturally, the question arises, was there anything before that? And there are different schools of thought on that question. I don't think we'll ever know the answer to that question either. But I believe that most physicists believe that there was some kind of time and space before our t equals zero and that, that our universe, and in fact, many other universes, arose out of what are called quantum fluctuations, which is a very hazy behavior of space and time at very, very small distance scales, much smaller than the size of an atom. And we, we know that quantum physics is, is valid in describing the world at small scales. We've seen particles materialize out of nothing due to quantum fluctuations, and we think that an entire universe could materialize out of nothing from a quantum fluctuation. If you look at nature at the world at very, very, very tiny scales, much smaller than an atom, billions and billions of times smaller than an atom, 
then space is not quiet. It's, it's constantly fluctuating with particles coming into existence and disappearing and time moving forwards and then backwards. It's a behavior of nature that is very foreign to our large-scale sensory perception. But we think that that's where the universe began. Many types of universes bubbling out and bubbling out of this seething mass of nothingness, ours just being one of those. Yes. Of course, Sean Carroll is just one physicist. There are many physicists who have ideas about this. Stephen Hawking was one. And there's a small fraction of physicists called quantum cosmologists who work on this question of how did our universe begin. And as we said earlier, we think that there are many different universes that come into existence. Ours is just one of them. Most of the universes probably do not have the right conditions for life to form. Is this unsatisfying, though? One can always push this a step backwards. It's sort of like the infinite regress of turtles. Why are there laws of nature anyway that would cause something to appear out of nothing? Well, that's, that's, a, that's a, a very good question. We don't know why there are laws of nature. If you ask a physicist named Roger Penrose in England, who recently won the Nobel Prize, he would say that ultimately it's all mathematics and that there's only one possible set of laws of nature that are mathematically consistent and that that would be his explanation of why these particular laws of nature. But in fact, with a, a branch of physics called string theory, we believe that there are lots of different kinds of laws of nature in different universes. We only have a particular set of those laws in our universe. These are questions which, which I believe we will never know the answer to, and that is one of the problems of modern science and especially modern physics, that it has now gotten to the point where we are asking questions that we will probably never be able to answer by experimental test. And that, of course, raises the issue, are we, when we get to that point, are we talking about science or, or maybe are we talking about philosophy or theology? Because if you can't test a proposition, if you can't do an experimental test to answer a question one way or the other, then maybe you're not dealing with science at all. This does indeed pose problems for scientists running up against theist arguments where they insert some sort of theistic explanation into that gap. Yeah. Well, personally, I don't think that, that a theist explanation is necessary. It just means that we are unable to test some of our ideas, but there's no reason why we should be able to test all of our ideas because we can calculate what the scale is of these quantum fluctuations where gravity and, and quantum physics merge together to create new universes, and it's 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. Now, that's one divided by 10 with 33 zeros after it. The smallest particles that we can probe with our current giant particle accelerators are about 10 to the minus 15 centimeters. So this is one billionth of one billionth of the size that we can probe with our particle accelerators. So we're talking, we're, we're discussing things that are far, far beyond our ability to test them. And that doesn't mean that there's some supernatural element that's intervening during those, those many powers of 10 that are, that are unavailable to us. It just means that we're able to imagine and extrapolate current theories to a realm that, that are, that's far beyond our ability to test them. Of course, physics and, and astronomy are not the only things that I talk about in the book. I also interview a biologist named Jack Shostak, who's trying to create life from scratch in the laboratory. 
and he believes that life originated from just the simple chemicals present in the primitive earth and he also feels that uh, that once we're able to demonstrate that that he wants the general public to know about that because it would show that no supernatural element is necessary to create life given the laws of nature that we do have that uh, emergence of some kind of life is almost inevitable somewhere in the universe oh yes it, it, it is inevitable i mean i i think it's inevitable on the other hand if we assume that other habitable planets have a an ecosphere a biosphere that's similar to that of earth then you can can estimate what fraction of matter in the universe is in living form and it's only one billionth of one billionth that's like one grain of sand on the gobi desert so when when looked at that way even though it's inevitable that there's life elsewhere in the universe that life is extremely rare in fact all living things in the cosmos are a tiny fraction of all matter that there is so life is very very rare in the universe even though it's plentiful it's very rare as a fraction of all matter and i can't quite wrap my head around that what what is the meaning of that 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 only a, a one billionth of one billionth of all material in the universe is in living form. I, I can't quite fathom the meaning of that. A theme that goes through the book is that we're in this spatial scale where they're many much larger than us and many much smaller than us. We're left having to try and fathom those orders of magnitude. Yeah, it's pretty amazing that with our rather small brains living on an ordinary planet in an ordinary solar system which is one solar system out of 100 billion in the galaxy and there are billions of other galaxies and we have such limited lifespans too you know 100 years it's amazing that we've been able to figure out as much about the universe as we have considering how small we are so i'm constantly amazed by that fact we're able to figure out when the universe began which is many 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 human lifetimes ago and yet we have very good estimates reliable estimates of when our universe began brings up the issue of us as humans more to the point as thinking individuals being aware of our place in the universe and how something like consciousness can arise from material matter where does something like consciousness come from yes yes it's a great question and neuroscientists have not yet figured that one out um even though we understand pretty well how individual neurons work the electrical properties of neurons how they communicate with each other we still don't understand how this very strange unique first person subjective experience of consciousness arises out of 100 billion neurons there's something in science called emergent phenomena and those are phenomena that involve many different parts and in which you can't understand the phenomena based on the understanding of the individual parts so we think that consciousness may be an example of an emergent phenomena where even though we understand how individual neurons work we can't understand or predict how this amazing sensation of consciousness arises out of the communications of all of those neurons there are other examples of emergent phenomena like termite cathedrals which are these giant mud constructions that termites make that are sometimes 8 or 10 feet tall that have all of these elaborate passages and tunnels in them allowing for air to come in and cool the thing it's certain that no single termite knows how to build a termite cathedral and and yet they all work together 
to produce this elaborate functioning construction. So how does that happen? That's another example of an emergent phenomena where you have many individual parts working together. You understand each termite, but you don't understand how 10,000 termites can build a termite cathedral. Somewhat deeper issue with understanding consciousness, what's pointed to as being the hard problem of consciousness, David Chalmers, even if we sort of understood all the mechanistic interpretations of how consciousness is arising, we still would be left with this explanatory gap of the redness of red as the feeling of something. We should, we should first recognize that consciousness is, is a, a graded phenomena, that surely other smart animals besides humans like crows and dolphins and monkeys, they probably have some version of consciousness. An amoeba probably is not conscious, so going all the way from amoebas to human beings, there's probably a continuum of different levels of consciousness. I do think that we will be able to understand some of the low levels of consciousness in terms of individual parts, but, you know, it's the question of whether you can understand a first-person experience by third-person experiments, that consciousness is the first-person experience par excellence. It is the prime example of the first-person experience, the, the sense of being in the world, of self-awareness, all of those attributes we associate with higher-level consciousness. Some philosophers say that even in principle, there's no way that we can understand that first-person experience because everything, every experiment that we do is a third-person activity. I mean, if you, you put, you know, three pounds of gray matter, the, the human brain on a table and you start doing experiments with it, you're outside of the brain. You're outside of the thing that you're examining. So it's hard to be outside of something and inside of something at the same time. I think that we will probably be able to produce computers that have some of the attributes of consciousness. And there are a number of neuroscientists and AI experts like Christoph Koch at the Allen Brain Institute who feel that we will be able to produce computers, to create computers that have some of the attributes of consciousness, but there will be outward manifestations. We still won't know what it feels like to be a computer. We don't know what it feels like to be a crow or what it feels like to be a dolphin. In fact, we don't know for sure what it feels like to be another human being. We assume that other human beings have the same sensations that we do. I mean, you asked the question, what is red, the David Chalmers question. We assume that, that if other human beings behave as we do and react to stimuli as we do, that they're having the same mental thoughts that we do, but we don't know for sure. The book is wide-ranging, as you certainly can tell. I mean, a great collection of essays. Unfortunately, we don't have time to cover them all, but I'd like to ask, do you have any particular favorites of these essays that put together? Well, that's hard to say. I think the essay that affected me the most emotionally is the one about my childhood home in Memphis, Tennessee, that was raised to the ground and my visit to the place where the house had been and was just struck by how many memories I had of that place. And yet all the physical manifestation of it was gone. And so it's really an exploration of, of memory and how we create reality and self-identity out of memory. So that had the greatest personal that, that experience uh, had the, the greatest emotional impact on me. And, and so I suppose that I could say that, that the essay I wrote about that came from the deepest part of me. 
It might be a good way to close musings on beginnings and ends. What about the end of everything? Where are we heading? Where's the universe heading? And what do we do in a universe that eventually will decay into entropy? Well, I'm not worried about what the universe is going to be doing 100 billion years from now. I mean, I'm not worried on a practical matter, but I, I am concerned about what's happening right now, and that is that we are using technology to a greater and greater extent to modify our sense perception and our being. And I think that at some time in the future, not too far from the future, we homo sapiens will have evolved in something you might call homo techno, which would be creatures that are half human and half machine. We're already seeing that happening now. And I wonder what will be left of our humanity, of what we consider to be most important about human beings when we are part human and part machine. For example, when we have computer chips implanted in our brains that connect us immediately and directly to the Internet, what is that going to feel like? People picking up the book, what would you like them to take home from it? Well, I hope that it will stimulate people to ask questions. And I think that the great philosophical questions and even some of the great questions of science do not have answers. But the questions themselves, like the poet Rainer Maria Rilke said, that we should learn to love the questions themselves, like locked rooms and like books written in a very foreign tongue. And so I hope that my newest book will stimulate people to ask questions and to wonder about the world. We were just talking with Professor Alan Lightman. The new book, Probable Impossibilities, Musings on Beginnings and Endings. Professor Lightman, thank you so much for joining us today on The Grok Science Show. Thank you, Charles, for inviting me. And that's all for this week's edition of The Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.